And patient number one might be like, hey, you place these anterior restorations for me and they keep breaking. My fillings keep chipping, my crowns are chipping, I'm not happy. Versus the patient who's taken ownership of their bruxism and they're the ones who come to you and after they chip something, they're like, hey, I'm so sorry. And they're apologizing to you. They're not blaming you, they're blaming themselves. Why? Because they know. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career with your host, Jazz Gulati. Happy New Year to the Protruserati. Welcome back to the show. I covered a lot of stuff regarding splints and occlusal appliances in September. Remember, we call it Splintember, and that was a real fun to record, but I felt as though I couldn't do it justice. I did have more to give and just never got around to making this AMSA part two, which I did promise you. So it's finally happening right now. AMSA part two. Let's continue from AMSA part one and finish off the Splintember series. Uh, these solo episodes, they really do take it out of me. It's actually really challenging to talk in front of the camera. It's so much easier just to have a chat with someone who you want to learn from. But, uh, you know, it's, it's great fun to do this. Ultimately, it is something that really challenges me. In fact, recently on the Protrusive Dental Community Facebook group, I asked you all, which was your favorite episode of episode series of 2020? And I listed every single one of them, the whole 38 or how many of there were throughout the whole year. And I was humbled that you guys had chosen the Splintember series of all the different episodes. So thank you so much. And I'm hoping that uh, I will do justice with this episode. You guys really encouraged me. So thank you. So we also finished 2020 on quite a high. Uh, I won an award. Uh, the podcast won an award for the best podcast in occlusion and treatment planning. Thanks to Course Karma. Uh, and I'm so grateful to whoever that one person was who, who voted for me initially. And that set off a chain reaction. And so many others ended up voting for me and like if it wasn't for you that one first person I wouldn't well may not have even discovered Course Karma. It's such a fantastic resource for dentists around the world to find uh, courses basically. So you know you always wanted that sort of one reference where where can I find all these courses we usually end up going on Google or asking on Facebook but what Course Karma is trying to do and it's still you know it's still got a bit to do to get there but I'm really encouraging Ali and uh, Ali Batia's name is and Course Karma to to really bring all the courses in the world in dentistry and bring them together in one place. And that's what Course Karma did. But thank you so much for all of you who voted for me. Really appreciate it. The podcast did celebrate its second birthday recently. It was started at the very end of 2018, early 2019. So it's been two years. The very first guest, if you remember, was Sarinda Aurora, who was all about moving to Singapore as a dentist. So expat dentist in Singapore. Uh, so I just wanted to thank Sarinda for, for being my very first guest. She's doing some great things. So if you're interested in yoga, or if you like the idea of yoga, she set up a new page on Instagram. It's at Dentists of Yoga. That's at Dentists of Yoga. So do check out Sarinda because she helped me a lot with this podcast. So I'd appreciate if you would check out her page. So here's the protrusive dental pearl for this episode. Remember at dental school where they taught us to use three fingers to assess whether your patient has trismus or not. So remember, if you use your three fingers uh, and you check and they can open three fingers, then that's great. And if they can open less than two fingers, so you make it in your notes, okay, one finger, two finger, three finger. But one thing they forgot to tell you uh, is that it's not your fingers, right? Uh, it's the patient's fingers. So for example, uh, I remember back in the day, I used to use my three fingers and a petite lady would come along and my three fingers had no chance of fitting inside her mouth, right? Uh, so unless you're a petite lady, then it's not gonna work either. So remember, it's, it's the 
patient's three fingers, not your three fingers, but how can we make this more objective? How can we check the maximum opening more objectively? Well, the easy answer is use a ruler, right? Use a ruler, uh, and sometimes what I like to use is one of these. I'm hoping you can see this, there we are. It's from Great Lakes. Uh, it's called a range of motion scale. So this is a pretty cool thing to use. Um, I'll put a little video in the background as I'm speaking about how I use this. The other thing you can do, which is pretty clever, is how about you calibrate your three fingers? Calibrate your three fingers, just get a ruler, measure how, uh, fat your three fingers are, and so you know that, hey, your three fingers are 38 millimeters or whatever, and that can give you some form of a gauge, basically. So that's my protrusive dental pearl. When you're checking for your maximum opening, be objective, use the patient's fingers, or at least uh, use a, a measurement tool like a ruler or uh, this uh, range of motion scale. Now, when would you want to check the, the opening range, when is it important? Well, before any complex dentistry, I think it's important. Uh, I like to do it as part of my new patient protocol because it will be the difference between me referring that patient for a molar root canal versus me doing myself, right? Because remember, easy dentistry on a difficult patient is still difficult. So I've struggled the most when I'm doing posterior restorations and rubber dam on people with limited opening. So it's an important factor. You should be screening for it, I think. So it's a good thing to, to know. Uh, but also, if you're doing any splint work, then you'll find that actually when you make patients splints, their range of motion can actually improve. So typically, you can, it's, it's, you know, it's not uncommon to get four to five millimeters plus, depending on where they started, of increased uh, mouth opening. So it's, it's important to be able to objectively show that. Because sometimes patients might come back and they think, you know what, I don't think this is working because maybe they didn't have that many symptoms to begin with, right? And, and you're giving the appliance for more protective reasons rather than to help them with pain. But if you say to the patient, hey, you know, before you were open, opening at 42 millimeters and now you're opening at 47 millimeters, it's important, it all counts. So that's my little tip for you today. So as part of making this episode and scripting this episode, I listened back to part one. So AMSA part one, I listened to that again. So hey, if you've ended up here by accident, you've just discovered my podcast and you thought, hey, let me click on this latest episode. It'd be really cool if you went back to the episodes in September, listen to the entire Splintember series, but particularly AMSA part one. So that today's episode sort of builds on AMSA part one. And I had to listen again to AMSA part one to help you recap. And I have to apologize, guys. I, I think it was complicated. It's partly because, hey, it's a, it's a complex field and I wanted to simplify it. But in a matter of 35, 40 minutes, how long the episode was, I really wanted to make it as valuable as possible and, and, and give you as much as possible. But by doing so, it can get more and more complex. So I'm so sorry if I lost any of you. I, I am trying to simplify it as much as possible, which is why I'm super excited to announce that very soon, the Splint course will be launching. So it's an online Splint course. It's www.splintcourse.com and I'm so stoked. It's four or five years of hard work uh, that I've worked on to, to bring this together to really the mission is to simplify splints for general dental practitioners. So I'm super excited to share with you. In this course, splintcourse.com, I'm gonna cover not only one or two appliances, but about four or five different appliances, what the indications are, how to identify who will benefit the most from appliance, like who are the true bruxes. And it's, it's fascinating, you know, because about 10 to 16% of all your bruxing and parafunctional patients are destructive bruxes. And it's fascinating research about what they do in their sleep and which phases of sleep they parafunction in, which determines what kind of bruxes they become. So there's a lot of research that I've, I've put into this, a lot of reading of the literature, which I've done for you, which is just fascinating. I'm so happy to share that. 
because it helps you to make an informed appliance choice. I talk a lot in the course about helping your patients with myofacial pain, and I go really in depth into anterior midpoint stop appliances. So, so something we've been talking about in the last episode uh, and this episode, but really building on it with more and more videos, with more uh, flow charts and design charts and, and how to get the most from your laboratory and how to get your patient to wear the damn thing. So we go into real uh, detail with that, but also, uh, how to get your bruxism patients to take ownership of their bruxism. Like there's a difference between the patient who you've done anterior restorations for and they keep chipping it. And patient number one might be like, hey, you place these anterior restorations for me and they keep breaking. My fillings keep chipping, my crowns are chipping, I'm not happy versus the patient who's taken ownership of their bruxism. And they're the ones who come to you and after they chip something, they're like, hey, I'm so sorry and they're apologizing to you. They're not blaming you, they're blaming themselves. Why? Because they know they have a Bruxham issue. You've educated them. You've, you've pre-warned them that this will happen and you've also given them an appliance to, to manage that because sometimes no matter how much uh, canine guidance you have, no, much, no matter how much posterior disclusion you have, they will still destroy things. So these true Bruxists, they will destroy anything that comes their way. That's why they destroyed their dentition to begin with. So super important we protect uh, against the force of power function for these patients. Now you might say, Jazz, look, I don't wanna be making splints all day long. I wanna be doing beautiful dentistry. I wanna be doing the full mouth rehabilitations. Well, I see appliances and splints as a precursor to that. I think you can totally use an appliance diagnostically in every patient who's you can be doing a raising of the OVD on uh, for several reasons, you know, not, you know, including relaxing the muscles. Don't you want your muscles to be in a relaxed state before you start changing the vertical dimension. That's one, but also diagnostically to figure out who are those true bruxes and there's a few protocols which I discuss in the splint course, which I'm so excited to share with you. So if that's something that interests you, if you found these episodes useful, but you just need that one step more to be able to implement it, then this course is for you. Do check out splintcourse.com. The secret is if you actually register and put your email address in, I will inform you about the launch offer, which I promise will be worth your while. The last point on, on that is that all of the education I've done, all the courses I've done, all the mentors, all the failures that I've had, chair side, which I will share with you in, in the course, they're all out there. Like you can totally go and start making your own splints and, and start trial and error and learn, which is fantastic. You can go to these courses, you can speak to some mentors, you can read the literature on this, which is vast and a lot of it's rubbish, some of it's golden. Uh, but what I offer with the splint course is just to save you time really. So it's all out there. Everything you need for splints is technically all out there, but what I'm offering you is saving you time and saving you tears in terms of failures, remakes, and, and lab issues that you might get. So I hope you'll join me for that course and that's my plug done. Uh, let's dive into the education of AMSA part two. So in part one, we covered about how these appliances are not as evil as dental school first taught you. I sort of busted the myths about the appliances, these anterior only appliances acting as a dial appliance. We, we looked into that already in part one we looked at how these appliances reduce resistance. And the analogy I used was like, if you're lifting a really heavy weight, doing loads of repetitions and your muscles get tired, but then I give you a lighter weight and suddenly your muscles can, can still lift that load, but it's so much easier compared to that heavy weight. Now the heavy weight is similar to your patient who's locked in and they've got this parafunctional habit due to sleep apnea, stress, uh, gastric esophageal reflux disease, whatever it might be, right? And they've got this parafunctional problem and they're trying to grind, but the muscles are locking them in. And what this does, it sends their muscles into overdrive. So you can just release that, then allow them to glide along because it won't stop their power function, remember? 
It'll just allow them to power function in a more dentally beautiful way, which is essentially how any of these appliances work. So um, we, we covered that. And we also covered how you should avoid this appliance in people with intracapsular issues who are joint load positive. So you do a, a load test and it's positive. But you know, these patients are rare. So I find a lot of patients are amenable to AMSA treatment, but it's also to, also to identify which ones may be high risk of getting anterior open bites. Remember, not because of the dial type movements, because of other reasons which I touched on. And again, at the end of this episode, I'll touch on again. In this part two, we're gonna cover about what's the difference between an NTI, an SEI, an MCI, a FOSS, like, is one superior than the other? So we'll look at the different varieties, different branding, and it's essentially just that. It's just branding, right? Like B-splint, E-splint. What's the difference? Is there a king of anterior midpoint stop appliances? I'm also gonna cover the, some of the decision-making that you have to do when it comes to uh, AMSAs. Like, should I give an upper? Should I give a lower? Should I make, should we make them upper and lower together? When might that be overkill? When that might be the only real option to go for? So we're gonna cover about some decision-making. Now that can be quite complex, and I always liken it to arts and crafts of decision-making. Like, you know, sometimes you can have to uh, get out there, make these splints, and figure out for yourself, because there's only so much I can cover in these episodes, but you'll find out a few of the most common reasons why you might go for one arch over the other. I'll be talking about which of my patients have had anterior open bites after such appliances, or any appliance, uh, and how we got in that situation, how to solve that situation or rather how to preempt that situation so it's not going to be an issue when it happens because why because you predicted it you told the patient this was going to happen so it's not even like you warned the patient you told the patient sometimes you can tell them with quite a lot of conviction that's going to happen and remember sometimes you want this to happen sometimes you want your patient to relax their mandible so much that they actually seat into centric relation and it gives you all that lovely wonderful space you want anteriorly to rehabilitate them. So that's uh, one thing we'll look at as well, which is so, so key. And lastly, why an AMSA might just be overkill. Uh, and sometimes a patient, all they need is a bit of plastic between the teeth. Why, um, how sometimes by heating and melting the soft bite guard, you can actually get a really great, even soft bite guard, which is just crazy, right? You're thinking, what the hell is Jan's doing? He's recommending the most evil appliance of all, even more evil than, uh, evil than AMSAs, right? The, the soft bite guards are really um, regarded in dentistry as a, as, a, as a terrible appliance and no one should, should have this, but hey, guess what's the most common appliance in the whole wide world? It's a soft bite guard. So let's make it even easier and more successful. And we'll talk about that as well towards the end of this episode. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. So let's look at those four things in order. The first one I said was, is there one answer that's superior to the others? Um, to put it bluntly, no, not really. It's a technology. It's the science. It's the science of biting on your front teeth that's furthest away from the TMJ. That's the most important. 
everything else is just dentists naming appliances after themselves. Remember the G-Splint? Remember that G-Splint I covered in episode 40 or 39, I think it was? So same thing, right? You want the most appropriate appliance for that patient, and it could be an NTI, it could be an SCI. So forget about the brands. I mean, there is one reason why I like the FOS, the FOS, the Flexi Orthotic Splint. It's because of the, the chemistry. The chemistry behind it is that the acrylic will actually bond to the polyester copolymer. Now, you can stick acrylic to NTI, SCI, whatever I call it, but there is no uh, chemical bond. It will stick, but the material science is completely different to polyester copolymer. So that's the main advantage. That's why I switched to FOSS. Uh, I find that to have a monoblock. So the acrylic joined to the FOSS blank uh, is, is a stronger appliance. And so far, my patient's done very well over the years with that. So use any appliance you want. Speak to the lab. Which is your local lab? Which is the, a good lab that you know that is going to make uh, these appliances? Uh, two labs that I can tell you in the UK right now is PDS, that's Precision Dental Studio in Thatcham. Uh, there, there's a subset within there called Bite. They make great splints. So do S4S, who have supported me a lot over the years as well. So these are two labs I can tell you straight away that are going to be able to help you and guide you on your anterior midpoint stop appliances. And the US, I'm sure there are loads in Australia. So find a lab, find a technician who's made loads and who can guide you. The main thing is for any anterior midpoint stop appliance, especially the ones that get, the smaller they get, is that make sure it's tight enough that they're unable to dislodge it with their lip or their tongue. So every patient, every fit, every recall, I always get their patients to bring their splint inside because not it's, it's not a wham bam, thank you ma'am kind of appliance, right? You gotta keep following it up, keep training them to bring their appliance in every time and tell them, remember, if you can remove this appliance with your tongue or your lips like that, then it's time to contact me, let's reline it, let's make you a new one, that means it's end of its life, or you know, just simply relining with acrylic, that's another benefit of using acrylic actually. Uh, so you gotta train your patients to make sure it's tight enough, and they should only be able to remove it with their hand. Uh, so remove it with their hand, completely cool, remove it with their lip or their tongue, uncool. And of course, make sure no back teeth are hitting on clenching and or grinding. Uh, and sometimes you might think they're not hitting, but as their muscles deprogram, just like on a Michigan appliance, you see their jaw go back, back, back. It can happen on an appliance as well. And sometimes I love to, or sometimes I always color these appliances in. And what they come back with is they come back with this like chevron, right? They come back with this like little V shape. In fact, I'll put a little photo up right now of one of these appliances uh, that they make a pattern in. And that shows you where their centric relation is. And that's the furthest back their mandible can go. So it's great for, for diagnostics, it's great for patient communication, but it also shows you their range of movement as well. So it's interesting actually how the parafunctional range of movement is often higher than what they can achieve during the day. So if you get their range of motion during the day to be around about 10 millimeters, you might find that in their appliance at nighttime, they're going 12 millimeters or more. So it's, it's really fascinating with the studies behind what you're doing in your sleep. Let's look at the second point, which is what kind of design is appropriate in terms of which arch should you choose for your AMSA? Should you choose the, the upper arch, lower arch, sometimes both? Well, the easy way to think about it is, and some things to consider in quick decision making is, if your upper arch has delicate restorations, let's say veneers, wouldn't it be good to get an appliance to completely cover those veneers or delicate restorations so that in power function, they're not taking any load at all? Because if you put the appliance on the lower incisors in that scenario, then even the upper incisal edge, let's say that's a veneer, is still taking load, right? It's still putting flexure and shear stress inside that looting cement. So it's sometimes good to incorporate your restorations within the splint. So whether those restorations are upper arch, quite commonly, or lower arch, consider that. How about crowding? 
if the lower arch is crowded, like you must have had this, right? Where the upper arch is completely um, aligned and the lower arch has lower incisor crowding, so common. Uh, and what you do is you make an appliance for the top and you find that because you're, you've got crowding on the lower, you're, you're always just hitting on one tooth and then you adjust that tooth and then you're hitting on the other tooth that's crowded and suddenly you're spending ages, a long time grinding it to get the even contacts and then suddenly in grinding you find that it's just one tooth taking all the loads again. So wouldn't it make sense to make the appliance on the crowded arch so that it's now up against the aligned flat opposing teeth, whichever it may be. So that's another sort of thing to consider in decision making upper or lower. And sometimes you might have to go for a dual. Uh, dual arch, like a top and a bottom arch, is good for your really hypertrophic muscles, your really strong grinders, because it gives them plastic to plastic. And plastic to plastic will always wear less than teeth to plastic, for example. So that's one thing uh, that I like about that. Uh, and also, if you've got upper and lower crowding and the patient won't have orthodontics, then go for uh, you know a dual arch uh, sort of AMSA. So that way, the crowded arch is, is negated and the upper crowded arch is negated and you've just got plastic to plastic meeting at the front and you get all the benefits of an AMSA which you discussed in uh, episode one. It's also worthwhile uh, using a dual arch design when you've got retention concerns because if you've got small teeth that are really worn and the patient doesn't want a rehabilitation and you're just putting them in a holding pattern and you're trying to you know, figure out where the muscles want to go. So at that point, you might find that if you're making them a small AMSA, it ain't going to work, right? If you want to extend that now to involve more teeth, top and bottom as well, it'll give you more retention. So some, for example, in one arch, if you've got small upper teeth, instead of covering two to two, extend that AMSA six to six, eight to eight, whatever you need to do to get it to grip onto more teeth to improve your retention. So that's another factor to consider. So each of those designs I just mentioned, whether it's upper arch, lower arch, or, or dual arch, there are some compromises and some considerations that you should have for each one uh, that is sort of going beyond the scope of a, an episode because I want to cover a lot more things. But bear in mind that uh, for every advantage there's you know some degree of disadvantage for using each arch where, whether it relates to patient comfort or a chance of an interference posteriorly uh, or raising the OVD too much and those are the kind of things that you should be looking out for as well. So how many of my patients have had anterior open bites after giving these types of naughty evil appliances? Well uh, around about Two, three patients have had uh, anterior open bites from anterior only appliances uh, and one from a posterior only appliance, which I didn't prescribe, but I just wanted to, to share that with you. I'm going to in fact show a photo of it now for those watching the podcast, for those listening, just imagine uh, a posterior appliance only on the molars, uh, which you can easily just buy on Amazon, right? But then you think, wait, Jazz, you just said a posterior only appliance, shouldn't that cause posterior intrusion? I'm like, yeah, it should, right? But it caused an anterior open bite. So you know how often I've seen in the past on, on Facebook and stuff, people post an anterior-only appliance and they say, this appliance caused my patient's AOB. These are evil appliances, stay away. Well, I can show you cases of AOBs from uh, Michigan Splints, from Tanner Appliances, from Essex Retainers, from uh, the, the posterior only appliance. Like, who would have thought, right? So there are other mechanisms at action. There's usually to do with the muscles relaxing. So the muscles can relax in, in any situation, including a posterior only appliance. So uh, isn't that interesting? Now, with the anterior only appliance that I gave, every one of those, with the confidence I had, with the mentors I had, and with the education that I've sort of delved into splints more and more and more, I was in a position that with every one of those patients, I was able to tell them before they even had the anterior open bite that, hey, you know what? With this appliance, you will get an anterior open bite. And this is what you will look like. 
And so when it happens, they're like, yeah, you know, what you said has happened. But guess what? Every time their symptoms went away, their muscle issues went away, and they weren't so concerned because no one smiles with their teeth together. And remember the whole thing about our teeth shouldn't be touching, you know, lips together, teeth apart. That's the mantra. So a lot of these times it's not an issue at all. So what does it boil down to? Well, it boils down to communication. Did you spot that they were high risk? And B, how was your communication beforehand and afterwards? Like if someone comes in with an AOB from appliance and you completely freak out and you call the police, then obviously the patient's gonna think, oh my God, my, you know, something's wrong, my bite, uh, you know, everything's going wrong, the world's on fire kind of thing. But whereas sometimes patients come in from other dentists who've given anterior appliances and they come in and they've got an AOB, I'm like, oh, okay, you, you know, your front teeth used to meet, now they don't. Um, how's that going for you, everything okay? They're like, yeah, everything's fine, no issues. I'm like, yeah, that's what I expect. Don't worry about it. Just keep wearing appliance. It's, it's a good thing. And as long as it's not an aesthetic issue or a massive functional issue, then it's okay. Like, you know, sometimes you have to warn these patients ahead of time that you may not be able to bite sellotapes. Use these tangible examples. Don't say you will get an anterior open bite. That means nothing to no one. Tell them you may not be able to bite your nails again, which is kind of a good thing. I wish, I kind. I, I think I need an AOB for that. But uh, you won't be able to bite your nails. You may not be able to bite sellotape anymore. And just give them these really tangible examples. So what, what are you thinking? Well, you're thinking, okay, Jazz, fair enough. But what are these high risk features? Well, I'm about to share with you the secret to figuring out who is at high risk. There's lots of factors, okay? But if I was to give you three main ones, right? It's the following. It's the patient, okay, who has got a minimal overbite to start with. Like they've got a one millimeter overbite. They've got like a 2% overbite or a 5% overbite, right? So if their jaw just shuffles back a teensy weensy bit, guess what? They have an AOB, right? They lose their coupling of the anterior teeth. So if you start off with a minimal overbite, then you are higher risk of getting an anterior overbite. Like you never ever get a deep bite patient and expect to give an appliance and for them to have an AOB. It's extremely rare, like, whoa, like that's a unicorn right there. So um, these minimal overbite is number one. Number two is those who've got posterior instability. So instead of, you know, Posterior stability is when, when they, bite, they bite together, everything just fits like a puzzle, you know, everything fits together at the back nicely. But you know those patients who everything is just like flat, like they can bite in four or five different positions, right? So in, in that patient, don't you think that if their muscles relax that they may actually forget to bite that Sunday bite that they usually have, they, that might change? Well, I think so, right? So it depends on the, the how well the teeth mesh together at the back. And the last one is they've got a significant slide between their centric relation contact point and their maximum intercostal position. So I'm gonna say that again. Their centric relation contact point, a large slide until their maximum intercostal position, then surely if they were to relax and their muscles change their bite in any way along that path, something that the muscles might enjoy a bit more, then that will result in a change in bite and a change in, in potential the overbite into an anterior open bite. So I hope that wasn't too confusing because I'm trying to, I know I'm trying to whiz through here, but I'm trying to jam pack as much as I can because I've got some communication bits coming up as well. So finally, point number four of the, the main things I want to cover in this episode about AMSA part two is what if an AMSA is overkill? What I mean by overkill is we make AMSAs to help people's muscles relax, right? And there are some side effects of doing that, which I've mentioned uh, exhaustively. And, you know, thankfully, most of our patients will not suffer these consequences. But any appliance, like any appliance you make, has its own risks, right? So sometimes when you've got a patient who's completely asymptomatic with minimal signs of muscle issues and dysfunction, healthy temporomandibular joints, 
and you just want to give them something just so they don't bash into things and they have this low-grade parafunctional issue which is just above your threshold or, or you've detected that there's a level of wear at which point you think it's inappropriate for their age. So it's pathological wear, not physiological. And I go over, go over that in, in another series. But it's sometimes overkill to give them an answer. So why don't we just give them some plastic between the teeth? Like people are so quick to dismiss soft bite splints uh, or the dual laminates, so soft on the inside, hard on the outside. Take it from me, loads of my patients get these because I don't feel that they can justify the time, the expense, uh, and, and maybe the patients themselves, they haven't taken ownership, right? So if the patient hasn't taken ownership of their problem and they really have put it, uh, like low in the value, because I charge a significant amount for my answers and they're not ready to commit to that, sometimes instead of them going away with nothing, you can explain to them that, hey, you know what, I'm gonna make you some passive fitting Essex retainers. Like we all can give that, right? So I mean, what I mean by passive fitting is that they must be comfortable to wear. Because what you don't wanna do is give a patient who's never worn an appliance before some really orthodontically tight uh, Essex retainers, right? Thermoplastic retainers. You want to give them something really easy to take on and off because the chance of them uh, swallowing or inhaling a large uh, Essex retainer is more than any bridge or restoration that they have, right? So uh, just give them that, but then just tell them, you know what? This is doing nothing for your joints. This is doing nothing for your muscles. It's just when you rub your teeth together, uh, the plastic will take the hit. Let's see how, how long it takes you to destroy this. Let's see if you get any headaches or muscle issues, at which point we know that it's just tipping you above that threshold. And then we can make you something that, although it, you know it's gonna be more of an investment, it's something that's gonna be really better for your joints and muscles. How's that, how do you feel about that, Mr. Smith? Because uh, it's usually the blokes who, 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 don't, uh, who don't go along with this kind of treatment because they don't have any symptoms or any issues, basically. So that's another hack I wanna give you that, hey, you know what, don't dismiss soft bite guards. I mean, interestingly, I think it was 1987 or 1989 where Jeff Oakson had that famous landmark study which proved that soft bite guards were, were terrible and then they'll turn your asymptomatic patients into symptomatic patients and, and many of them will, will get worse and whatnot. But when you read that paper, it, it had an N number of 10, right? Had an N number of 10 and everyone did well with the hard appliance and about five people got a little bit worse. But I think if that's the basis of what all the decisions we make in dentistry now, then you know we need more than that. And actually there's a randomized control trial that was done some years after. Uh, I, I might put it in the protrusive dental community actually, where actually what they did in this study was they, instead of giving them just a soft bite guard, like in the Oakson protocol and not doing any adjustments, because in the Oakson protocol it said, we didn't bother with any adjustments of this soft bite guard because it's near on impossible. And it used that word, impossible, right? But then some years later, RCT, which I'll share on the protrusive dental community, they gave the soft bite guard, but they, they heated it, or you can get an air, you know, a, a blowtorch something, melt it, get them to patient to bite into it and grind a little bit left and right. So now they've at least, at least got some degree of balance, right? Uh, and it's not just like hitting in one area uh, and it actually gets the anterior to touch just a slight amount. So can't you imagine that this might be biomechanically a superior way to deliver a soft bite guard than just a plug and play one? So that's an interesting one. I'll share that paper on the Petrusa Dental Community. So I hope you enjoyed that little reflection there about, you know what, sometimes AMPSs are overkill. Uh, and I go over various different types of other appliances which may be all more appropriate on splint course. Now, one last thing to, to end with is a communication one. Now, as you know, I've been doing some group functions, which is where we come together as a Petrusarati to answer questions. Uh, and I had Gurpreet on. Uh, he was supposed to be group function number two, but Zach Kara came along and stole his thunder. But I'm still gonna use his, his entry because 
he asked a really cool question. I've been mentoring a little bit and we talked about these anterior midpoint stop appliances and he sent me some photos of a case and I sort of said, okay, make an upper or a lower here for this reason and this is what you tell the patient, this is how you screen and stuff like that. So he said to me, what if it doesn't work? Like you're charging, you know, 450 pounds, which I told him to charge initially. He said, what if it doesn't work? And I said, wow, okay, this is something we can totally tackle in a group function. So I'm going to put that uh, now, coming next, this group function straight after this. But what about these appliances and you charge a certain amount of money? Like for me personally, AMSIS can cost anywhere from a very simple one to an easy patient, you know, a repeat appliance for someone who broke theirs or whatever, or lost theirs, is £450 to £850 usually. And a Michigan or a Tanner appliance is anywhere from £700 to £1,100, depending on the patient as well, basically, because there are some more complex features uh, and, and some features of their personality or their malocclusion, whatever, that makes it easier. So uh, that's the sort of range. So then it's common to start making appliances and having a feeling that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm charging so much money for it but think about how much chair time how much expertise it takes so you have to charge appropriately so listen to this next episode so i'm going to say goodbye and i'll catch you in the next episode uh, but then now i'm going to catch myself speaking with gurpreet on a group function about hey what if i charge my patient for this appliance and it's not working okay, hi guys uh, I'm, I'm live i'm live on youtube this feels pretty cool uh, i could have gone on facebook but this is a, a new software that i'm trialing at the moment uh, so because of that i wanted to just try out on youtube uh, and this is a new arm of the podcast so it's called group function and it's sort of like an ask me anything but we're sort of working together more like a group so it's a, the protrusive dental community if you like uh, working together to, to come up with the answers the first couple i'm taking but then as the questions come in i'm going to pitch them to previous guests and and future guests. So today on the show to cover a topic about splints is a really good question that was asked by Gurpreet and I really thought a lot of people would benefit from, from discussing this. So um, I'm going to invite uh, Gurpreet who's called into the show now. Uh, let's invite him on so he can ask his question and let's see if we can have a chat about how I would approach that situation uh, and see if we can get some value out of that. So I'm going to accept uh, Gurpreet. His question is, what if my splint doesn't work? And I'll, we'll, we'll set some background in a moment because Gurpreet and I have had a, had a chat about this already. So let's uh, get uh, Gurpreet to jump in. I'm just going to check my YouTube tap. Uh, am I live? Yeah, looks like I'm live at the moment. Good. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks Brilliant. for coming on and Hello. agreeing to, Thanks to do this bit. Thanks for having me on. Um, looking forward to sort tell of me, finding your views. No, so tell me, just set the scene. Set the scene about the patient you told me about uh, and, and what is the initial sort of dilemma, if you like. Brilliant. So the patient's come in. She's been seen by multiple different dentists in the past, uh, complaining of tenderness in her lower left three area. In the past, has been under the care of a hospital and has had a mouth guard, a full mouth guard, which has worked temporarily, but she's grinded through it. Then she was given a mouth guard. By do, you, do you know if it was soft or hard? Do you know, have so you she, seen the mouth she, guard and the night guard? I'm not. It has been a thin mouth guard, which is what was different to what the last dentist prescribed, which seemed to be a slightly thicker one that she just didn't get on with, and she's not wearing it. Uh, recently, she's had a, had a baby. She was off work and recently started working again, so she said stress. I was thinking um, that she may benefit from an anterior mid-stop appliance, um, and that leads me to the question. So I asked you for your advice. And uh, to follow on from that, my question was, what if it doesn't work? Because these appliances are quite expensive. Um, and if I'm charging the patient quite a lot of money for these appliances, how can I be sure um, that it's justifiable? Okay. 
really really important themes uh and i'm so glad you asked it in that in that way as well because actually adds another dimension onto it so what i want you to do is i want you to mute your mic for a moment because i'm hearing some echo see if you can mute your mic i'll see i'll see if i can do it for you there we are i've muted you so you can still hear me right okay i i've muted you so uh basically um can, can you can give me a thumbs up group that you can hear me yeah, quite sweet. So first, uh, you talked about a patient. And the first thing that I sort of thought to myself was um, this patient has probably got obvious signs of power function because uh, the previous two dentists gave a night guard. OK, so nowadays, the most commonly underdiagnosed thing in dentistry is, is power function. So if the patient has a, a night guard, two things have happened. One, a dentist has diagnosed that something's happening, power function, okay? And it's probably been significant enough. And everyone's got a different threshold. And a lot of people wait until we got loads of dentine exposure before prescribing a splint. Uh, and two is that the patient's probably now come to terms with the fact that, hey, you know what? I power function. Okay, so that's the first thing I gathered. The second thing I want to address is that whenever you get a splint history, one of the easiest things to find out from your patient is, hey, was it rubbery? Was it, could you bend it? Is it soft or is it hard? Because that sort of helps you to know uh, what they've had previously. And of course, in the future, you can get them to bring it in again. Now, for those of you uh, who, who, who are joining this group function and you've never heard of an AMSA, as you said, Grupri, an anterior midpoint stop pliance, Listen back to a few episodes we talked about, you know, in Splintember series, all the different types of splints, but essentially a splint that sits on your front teeth. And to sort of uh, cut a long story short, me and Gupri already had a bit of a preamble, a bit of a chat about this patient. And we think that um, the reason why this lower left canine is hurting uh, is, and did you say there were some uh, muscle issues as well? I've unmuted you. Yeah, so the patient has had TMJ problems and that's why she was under the care of the hospital. Uh, since then, things have got a lot better, so she's been taken away from the care of the hospital, but the patient still reports having tenderness around her lower left three. Headaches, yep, occasional headaches, patient reports bilaterally. Um, you did ask about uh, muscle tension. Check the muscles. There wasn't anything significant in terms of the size of the muscles, um, but yes, headaches was definitely part of the history that she gave me. Okay, so we're thinking a diagnosis of myofacial uh, pain uh, and also the fact that actually the, the canine, the reason her canine could be hurting is could be, and I don't like to say could be due to the occlusion, but could be due to the power function. And if you're power functioning on a dodgier occlusion, then that could uh, lead to it. So anterior midpoint stop lines have two benefits in this scenario, okay? One is that it can be diagnostic. Is it the power function that's causing that pain or not? Now, if you give this appliance to a patient and the pain's still there, then we know that it's probably not the power function. Okay, so that's one. Uh, the second thing that we're doing here is helping the muscles to relax and hoping if the muscles are or the power function is contributing to her tension and headaches, then that will get better. So it's very much diagnostic, potentially protective as well. Uh, and the other thing uh, you mentioned was that there was no real muscle um, Tension, if you, when you palpated, there was nothing obvious. And quite often you will find that, okay? Uh, it's not that common to find uh, tension, but also you've got to make sure you're palpating in the origin and the insertion, for example. It's one of those sort of observations. Now, we, I, I agree with you that I think an anterior midpoint stop lines would uh, sort of do the three things that you want. Protect the teeth, find out if the lower left three is hurting due to the power function and, and see if the headaches will get better. So it, it, it fulfills the function, okay? But then you mentioned absolute fantastic things, same mistake I've made before as well, and you talked about expensive. You use the word expensive, right? 
You say expensive, but uh, the, the word expensive has negative connotations because, you know, why do people buy £3,000 handbags, right? Like, why do people buy uh, £30,000 cabinets, okay? Because they're looking for a solution. And for, for the solution comes with a lot of value. So you're not, you're not providing an expensive solution at all. You're uh, providing a valuable solution to that patient. So if the patient's problem is big enough, then, then she, that 400 pounds, 700 pounds, whatever, 1200 pounds, whatever you're charge, it doesn't matter. It's about what value can you bring to the patient. The value that you can bring to this patient, Gurpreet, is that um, A, you're actually potentially help, going to help her with a muscle issue. You're going to help her uh, preventing further tooth surface loss. Uh, and also, it's a diagnostic. You know, is this lower left three that's obviously bothering her enough to be able to come and see you as a dentist? Is it going to be uh, fixed or not? So the, the money in this uh, situation is regardless. But what you mentioned was very a good thing that you mentioned. Was that Hey, you know what? I'm giving this splint. What if it doesn't work? Okay. It's a bit like when you go for some, I don't know, to a doctor, a cardiothoracic, a, a, a cardiovascular doctor, and he puts a stent inside, and the stent has partially worked, but it's not partially worked. Um, are you going to get your, imagine you work in a private country, are you going to get your money back? Well, I think it, it's a lot to do with communication, and you have to communicate to the patient that, hey, you know what? I'm doing this on a diagnostic basis. Okay, this is a diagnostic appliance. I can guarantee that if you wear this splint every night, your teeth will not wear away and it will be very minimal difference in years to come between your teeth now and your teeth in years to come because you can guarantee that from any splint. Okay, so that should be your uh, fail safe. That should be something that a, a guarantee that you can always give. Okay, whether or not the muscles uh, are going to get better or not, whether or not her headache's going to get better. Um, okay, the so video has been disabled. Good back. Don't worry. I know you can still um, listen up. So whether or not the muscles are going to get better, it sort of depends on whether if the power function was actually contributing to the headaches or not, and and whether or not um, her muscle tension will get better will also depend on the power function. Now, my guess is yes, because two dentists have already th thought that she power functions and she'll probably benefit from a splint. But the way you say to a patient, like, hey, you know what? I'm trying to help you. I can guarantee that if you wear this and you get along with it, your teeth will not get worn down anymore. But let's see if we can get rid of your headaches and let's see if we can get rid of this pain from your lower left three. And if it doesn't, then we know that we need to, um, you know, bark up a different tree. So really, it's um, two two things here. Uh, one is a value. You're providing something so much more than just a splint, okay? And it's not expensive. It's very valuable to a patient. So that's what you should uh, keep in mind. And 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 definitely, you can't overpromise. You have to underpromise and overdeliver with everything we do in dentistry, especially with splints, because some people will just not tolerate and get along with certain splints. If you get the diagnosis right. Uh, which I think you have done here. We, we think it's myofascial um, and I think there is a good chance it will work, but it's how you frame it to the patient. And if, if you, you have to dissociate yourself from if the patient accepts the treatment or not. Okay, that's up to the patient. But you've done your hard work. You've thought about it. You've been to the splint course. You came to my splint course in February. You spent time and money away from family, away from the practice to come and learn about this. You are ready to implement this and you can really help a lot of patients. But it's about your mindset. It's about how you pitch it to the patient. What do you think about that, Gabriel? Yeah, I think I think um, the day we had the conversation, it was quite quite an important one. Um, I think it's all about not having these limiting factors for yourself and thinking about the bigger picture. Um, for me, thinking about splints, the expensive side of things, but obviously for somebody who's been having these symptoms, the chance of becoming asymptomatic, not having these headaches, is is of high value. So I think definitely um, it's the way the way it's being pitched. 
Um, the patient makes a really big difference. You are going to provide a, a valuable service uh, a, a, for this patient and it's going to be diagnostic and it's going to be protective. So uh, don't worry too much about that. But definitely communication is important. Uh, and you sort of have to be confident in your approach that, hey, you know what? I, I've seen these two other appliances and I can tell you don't get along with them. What do you want to do? Do you want to just wear nothing and then bear the consequences of wearing no appliance on a parafunctional patient? Or... Do you want to have lots of dentistry to give you all this, you know, canine guidance and all that sort of stuff? You know, you can spend a lot of money there. Maybe the patient's not ready for that. But maybe by going through your approach, you'll get the benefit of, of having a splint that she can tolerate and be actually achieving all those aims that we said. So uh, I hope, Gabri, I hope that helped the sort of um, the way that you approach it. And I hope those who are listening have, have found this a group function, the second one, even though it's the first one going live, but it's the second group function that will probably go on the podcast soon. Gabri, uh, thank you so much for, for being my second victim. No, thank you very much. Okay, sweet buddy. You can uh, see, I'm, I'm trying this new software. I have no idea how you can uh, end that. So uh, how do you leave? Can you leave? <laughs> Oh, I'm going to give remove guests. Oh, there we are. I managed to remove Gopreet. So I'm learning this new software. It's pretty cool, actually, how it can go live at the same time. People people can call in and we can take questions like that. So I hope, I hope you guys found that useful. Uh, and I'll be sticking this up on the podcast as a group function number two. Uh, and uh, guys, if you ever have any questions for past guests, future guests, part of the Protrusive Dental community, uh, then we'll be able to, to tackle those together. And once again, thanks to Gopreet for coming on and asking a very a pertinent splint question that what if my splint doesn't work well it's about how you approach that problem how you pitch it to the patient what promises you do make you have to be very mindful for that so uh, over and out guys thank you so much mm.